Well, tonight we're continuing our study in the hallmarks of a uh, biblical church. The hallmark, hallmarks of a biblical church. We get that word hallmark from um, the uh, hallmark, the hall in London that used to, uh, still does actually, show the genuineness of metals. And uh, so a hallmark is just that, the hall putting its mark on something to show its genuineness. And we've been in, uh, spent a little time in 1 Timothy chapter 3, and um, we're looking at this series on, on the hallmarks of a biblical church because it's important to know if you move or if you go on vacation or whatever, what's, what to look for when you go to a church. Um, We've looked at two of them so far, the high view of God and a high view of the scriptures. We looked at last week, and tonight we're going to tackle the biblical view of man, <laughs> biblical view of man. So we're going to try to take all this information and summarize it a little bit. Um, now, John Stott wrote a book, you probably, many of you probably read it, Basic Christianity, Unfortunately, later on in his life, John Stott, before he passed away, kind of went off the rails, but um, to some degree. But his book, Basic Christianity, was a, was a good book. And in the book, he talks about evidence that's all around us that shows us the sinfulness of man. It's just all around us. And in the book, he reminds us back in the 19th century, there was a great deal of, uh, you could say, optimism or um, good favor about mankind. A lot of things were going good and everything. And it was widely believed that man's nature was fundamentally good. And that man's problems were really primarily the, the result of ignorance or because of the environment. So we kind of got into this thing of, well, the, way, the reason this person's a criminal or the reason this person's this way or that way, whatever it might be, is because that's the way they were raised or it's because of their parents or it's because of this. And so if you, if you educate man, the thought was, and if you uh, work to improve his living conditions and his standards, then he will basically live together in happiness and goodwill. <laughs> uh, well, enter the 20th century, right? We, I mean, and you, and you go downhill from there. So the history of, of previous centuries doesn't really play true to what's going on today, especially in our society. But in his book, he, he writes about the, the history of the 20th century. And he says this, it, it really made the 19th century seem silly and naive. And he wrote this. He said, the persistence of conflict on the world stage and the widespread denial of human rights have forced thoughtful people to acknowledge that a hard core of selfishness exists in each and every one of us. And then he went on to say, he says, much that we take for granted in a civilized society is actually based upon the assumption of human sin. Nearly all legislation has grown up because we simply cannot be trusted to settle our own disputes with justice and without self-interest. A promise is not enough. We need a contract, he says. Doors are not enough. We have to have locks with bolts on them. Uh, the payment of fares is not enough. We have to have tickets issued and then inspected. 
to make sure that they're not frauds, and then collected. Law and order are not enough. We need police to enforce the law and the order. All of this, John uh, Stott writes, is due to our sin. He says we cannot trust each other. We need protection against each other. It is a terrible indication of what the human nature is really like. I think we'd all agree that's a true statement. That is very true. And that was very much at odds with the, the worldview that we see all around us about the nature of man and his problems. Uh, we know, probably if you've been educated in any kind of a secular institution at all, we understand the evolutionary naturalism and what they teach. They teach that, that man is basically just an animal. <laughs> And uh, the simple approach of his, the, the product of his instincts, and those instincts are simply chemical reactions in his brain. He's just reacting. Uh, there's nothing good or bad. Uh, humanism, on the other hand, teaches that man is basically good. And if we're given the right information, the right environment, we will continue to improve on the evolutionary uh, scale. And the question of the nature of man and his problems really, when you come to church life, could not be more fundamental, could not be more foundational. Because unless you understand the true biblical view of mankind, you could create a church that's way off the mark. And that's what we see all around us today. Um, it's absolutely essential because where a church lands on this issue of the view of mankind, and they ultimately shape their entire approach to mission. Uh, ministry around that. And so it's important that we understand what this, what this is. Uh, as a matter of fact, this goes all the way back even to, Dave, you'll like this, even to the Reformation. You probably already know this. Um, where there was a dispute between Erasmus, who was basically the Roman Catholic scholar, and Martin Luther. And Erasmus was initially, in his view of the Reformation, a little bit sympathetic toward it because he understood just as a Catholic, looking at the Catholic Church at the, the time, coming out from a, 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 just a very wicked family who had control over the popes and everything, uh, the Bourget family, and it was absolutely just full of evil of every kind. And so Erasmus knew that there had to be some kind of reformation, uh, and he, he needed that kind of to happen. And so what happened was... Erasmus, he understood the need for reform, was soon asked to respond to write an official church response to Martin Luther because of the, the Reformation stuff. And he wrote what he called his, his diatribe concerning free will. Diatribe concerning free will. And it was a, it was a, it was a discussion talking about free will. And Luther, Martin Luther, on the other hand, responded with what he believed in his most important, what I would say, theological work, called the what? Bondage of the will. So you had one guy that was pretty much all about free will, the other guy saying, well, wait a minute, now there's a sovereignty of God involved here and all these other things, um, the bondage of the will. And it's absolutely foundational to understand this whole concept. Um, Luther saw it really as the heart of the gospel. If you understand this, B.B. Warfield, another theologian, he called Luther's work, The Bondage of the Will, the Manifesto of the Re Reformation. That's how important it is. If you've ever read it, it'd be a good read for you. Um, so why did this become an issue? 
why did these two guys come to heads over this? Um, what was the point of the attack? Well, Luther tells us. He responds to Erasmus' book, and he writes this to Erasmus in his book, The Bondage of the Will. He's answering Erasmus's book, and he writes this personally to him. He says, I give you hearty praise and condemnation, uh, commendation on this further account that you alone, Erasmus, in contrast to all others, have attacked the real thing. That is the essential issue. What's the problem? He's pointing it out. You have not wearied me with those extraneous issues about papacy or about purgatory or about indulgences and stuff like that, trifles rather than issues in respect of which almost all to date have sought my blood. And then he adds this, though without success. <laughs> In other words, they're trying to kill me, but they haven't succeeded yet. He says, you and you alone have seen the hinge on which all turns and have aimed for the vital spot. And he said this, Erasmus, you get it. You understand that this is the key issue, man's nature and the extent to which sin has affected his nature. See, if you don't understand that, then you're prone to make excuses, you're prone to blame others, you're prone to do all this stuff with the sin that we see in our own lives and in the lives of others. And it's a very critical issue. And so we've looked at these, these, these two primary things, the high view of God, the high view of Scripture, and I almost wanted to put the low view of man, but it's, it's, it's not. It's not a low view, it's just an honest view, it's a biblical view. And, and that's what we need to look at tonight, is this, this biblical view of man. And then we'll continue on in the next couple of weeks, the view of the church and the centrality of Christ um, and the gospel. But tonight, as we look at this, what do, what do we mean by this? What do we mean when we say a biblical view of man? Well, I think it's important to understand that a biblical church will really understand and embrace what the Bible teaches about the nature of man, about his problems, about his issues, about their solutions. And, and all that is, is so important. A biblical church understands and embraces what the Bible teaches about the nature of man, his problem, his uh, problems, we should say, plural, or his, and, and the solutions for that. And so when you, when you stop and you think of this, why is this such a big deal? Because there's other people that don't believe in the biblical view of man. And I wrote them down there, the primary views of man and his problems. The first one there, we know, know it is depth psychology. And you see a lot of this in churches today. Basically, it's the brainchild of Sigmund Freud. And Freud taught that man is an instinctual animal. So he's just responding. He has instincts, just like a dog would, uh, and, uh, or, or drives, you could say. And, and Freud called that the id, I-D. That's what he called it. And those instincts, or drives, are, are good. <laughs> this is what he taught. But those drives are shaped by and suppressed by society. So basically inside, you wanted to do the right thing, but because of all this stuff around you, you're shaped in a wrong fashion. Uh, he said that what we learn from the society is our learned society, societal conscience. And that learned societal conscience, which he identifies as our, he called it the superego, 
that conflicts with those basic good drives, that's where the problems come from. And so uh, you see that. And, and society has taught this for ages in all kinds of schools and colleges and has taught this kind of collective conscience that we have and that the conscience is the, the conflict with our good basic drives and instincts that we have inside. And so the guilt we experience uh, is really not real guilt. It's false guilt, they say. And the solution to our problems, depth psychology, uh, Freud would say, is to free the id, uh, free those basic instincts and let them function uh, and, and in turn weaken the hold of the superego. That's a lot of psychobabble in my mind, but it's important that we understand that people really believe this. Christians believe this stuff. Okay, A lot of Christian counseling today is made up of this very, this very information. Um, and so you really have to stop and say, wow, that, that is an interesting um, view. It's not a biblical one anyway. And there's, there's basically four views I want to share with you. The first three are secular, and the, third, the fourth one is the biblical view. The second one is known as behaviorism, and, and this was uh, pushed forward by B.F. Skinner. And Skinner taught that man is a conditional animal, you notice how they're all animals. Uh, he, he, he's born as kind of a blank tablet. You come into the world as just a blank slate. His problems and everything else, the issues that he has in life, are, called by, are caused by what uh, the environment writes on the tablet for him. So he's not responsible for anything. And he's shaped primarily by what he learns and, and from environmental issues around him. And the problem you see is that the environment fails us and writes the wrong messages on the blank tablet. That's the problem. That's why we have all this stuff going on in our society today. And so what is the solutions to these problems that he says that man has? Well, it's to restructure not the man, but his environment, <laughs> okay? And to make them more comfortable with himself that will enable him to modify his own behavior. If he can be comfortable with who he is, then he's not restrained by what he's, what's been written on him by society and by the environment in which he finds himself, and he'll be able to modify his behavior, hence behavior modification or behaviorism as we call it. Um, they call it in the psychological field. So that's the second, the second view. The third view is basically humanistic psychology, and this is Carl Rogers is the the brainchild of this, humanistic uh, psychology. And it's basically, he taught that man is basically good and has good potential within him. Actually, a great potential, he said, within. And he just needs to mature like a flower would mature. And as that person matures, then eventually that beautifulness and that goodness will just flow out. And uh, the, the problem, though, is that the environment around him hinders him from growing, hinders him from blossoming. It's like buying a beautiful plant and never watering it, right? You're hindering that plant from continuing to be beautiful. Well, that's what he believed. And so even though that person's full of potential, uh, he's never going to see that realized because of his environment. Everything around him is causing him to uh, stunt his growth. And, uh, you know, he went on with this whole thing. And now... All those three are just, when you read the Bible, you don't find any of that in there. Okay, and that's why we always say, if you're looking for counseling, look for a biblical counselor, someone who knows the Bible, 
someone who's not going to give you a bunch of secular psychobabble about why you're the way you are? Well, the fourth view, and this is where we're going to spend the majority of our time tonight, is the biblical view of man. And the biblical view of man begins with the reality that, first of all, men are not animals. All right? Basic. It seems kind of obvious to all, all of us, probably. But in the world, that's what people believe. Um, instead, they're created by what? A personal God. And they're created not only by God, but they're created by God in his image for the purpose of glorifying him and enjoying him forever. Now, the fact that you were created by God basically means that you belong to God. The Bible teaches that. You're not your own, right? uh, As Christians, we've been bought with a price, that verse goes on to say. But but in a very real sense, we've all, everybody, Christians, non-Christians, all beings have been created by God. Every human being belongs to God in that way. They may not be his child. Maybe they haven't trusted in Christ. Maybe they're not a Christian. But they're still part of his creation. Um, we don't belong to ourselves. And um, he has, because of that, he has the right really to tell you and to tell me and to tell everybody else what to do because we're his property. We're his creation. We're not our own. We didn't create ourselves. We belong to him. He's our creator. He made us. He sustains us. He gives us everything. You can read that in uh, Psalm 145. It tells us all about that. And at the first, this worked out well, didn't it? For Adam and Eve, man was totally righteous, enjoyed this perfect relationship with God. And, of course, as Kai has pointed out to us in Genesis 3, in our Wednesday studies on Genesis, after the fall of Adam and Eve, what happened? Everything changed. Everything changed. And now the Bible teaches that each one of us is born into the world as a, what, fallen sinner, as a, as a person who is guilty in every respect, is Adam is guilty. We are sinners by um, heritage. We're, sin- we're sinners by choice, both. And it- it's true that our environment influences us. That is true. The Bible indicates that. Um, avoid bad company because it corrupts your morals and so forth. But listen carefully. The Bible says our environment does not determine who we are. Our environment does not determine who we are. In fact, the Bible teaches, and we're going to see this in a moment, the Bible teaches that you are, and I am, personally responsible for the person that we have become. We are personally responsible for the the persons that we have become. It's not God's fault. It's not God's fault because of how he made you. It's not Adam and Eve. Um, it's, it's, It's not as if Adam and Eve let me say it this way, immediately began to shift the blame to one another. See, it's not, it's not your spouse's fault, right? That's what they did, that whole blame-shifting thing. Um, it's not your parents' fault. It's not the fault of your environment. It's not the how you were raised. It's your fault. It's my fault. This is what the Bible teaches. It's, it's at its very root our problem, according to Scripture. And it comes down to one one issue, one word, one single word, one short word, one three-letter word. The word is what? Sin. It's sin. And we all own it. And this is the biblical view of man that makes, that, that really, that really makes uh, a church truly biblical when you embrace that view of who man really is. Now, you see this throughout 
the entire Bible, uh, you know, this problem of sin. It, 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 in the New Testament, as we've been looking at the pastoral epistles, it, it's all over the place in there. Uh, I don't have time to show you all the examples, but just in, 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 in First and Second Timothy and Titus, uh, look at First Timothy uh, chapter 1. And he, he's addressing here the problem of false teachers, First Timothy chapter 1. And that's where they were uh, in Ephesus, and, and apparently they had they were they were Jewish false teachers, and they shared some similarity to some of the heresy that was going on in Galatia, and they were adding the law to into salvation. They were saying you have to keep the law in some form or fashion to be saved. They were misunderstanding the whole purpose of the law, and. Um, he, he says in verse 7, look at what he says. He, verse 6, he says, Certain persons, by swerving from these, have wandered away into vain discussions. And then it says this, Desiring to be teachers of the law, without understanding either what they are saying or the things about which they make confident assertions. You don't ever, as a teacher, especially of the Word of God, you never want someone to say, yeah, he's a teacher, but you know what? He, has, he doesn't understand anything. He doesn't even understand what he's saying half the time. That would not be a good, good thing. You never want that to be said of you as a teacher. Well, look at what he says in verse 8. Now, we know that the law is good, right? He's going to teach about the purpose of the law. Why is the law given? What's its purpose? Why did God give the law? This is the Mosaic law. This is what we're referring to here. He's talking about what God gave at Mount Sinai, the Ten Commandments, if you wanted to summarize it to that. What's the purpose of it? Um, it's good if one uses it lawfully, right? That's what he says. If one uses it lawfully, the law is good. Um, and then he says this. He says, understand this, that the law is not laid down for the just, but for the lawless. And so you would say, oh, well, yeah, well, see, there must be some righteous people. He's not saying the law wasn't made for a righteous person. He's basically pointing out there is no righteous person. There is no just person. He's not saying there are such a, a, a righteous person. It's kind of tongue-in-cheek. Uh, just like the Lord said, you know, I, I have come to call what? I have, I've come to call sinners to repentance. I didn't come to call who? The righteous. Well, he, he's, he's making a statement there. There is no righteous He's not saying there's a group of people that are totally righteous and they don't need me as their savior. He's not saying that. Uh, he wasn't saying that at all. And so that's what Paul is saying here. He's saying that you know the law wasn't made for a person who is comfortable and confident in his own righteousness, although ultimately it will bring him to repentance as it did with Paul in Romans uh, 7. But the law was to show what a person, they were a sinner. Look at what he says there in verse uh, verse 9, understanding this, that the law was not laid down for the just, but for the, for the lawless and disobedient, for the ungodly and sinners, for the unholy and profane, for those who strike their fathers and their mothers, for murderers, for sexually immoral men who practice homosexuality, enslavers, liars, perjurers, and whatever else is contrary to sound doctrine. So, you know, if your little sin isn't named there, anything else that fits in there... Uh, you know, this is not an all-inclusive list. It's not meant to be. What's he doing? He, he's saying that 
that God needed to intervene in human history and give his law at Sinai so people would understand what the depth and the seriousness of their own sinfulness. That's what he's saying. So this is basic to God's revelation, Paul says. Uh, and by the way, even down to verse 13, he, he says this is true even of religious people. Look at verse 13. Though formerly I was a blasphemer, a persecutor, insolent opponent, but I received mercy, he says. Right? He, he includes himself in this group. So it's not just unbelievers that have this. It's religious people that have this same kind of issue going on. And even over in Philippians chapter 3, verse 13, Paul is saying, I was, I was um, blameless, but I was formerly a, a blasphemer, a persecutor, a violent aggressor. I needed mercy. I was shown mercy. I was uh, living in, in, uh, in unbelief, and I needed God, he says. Verse 14 there in, in, in 1 Timothy, he goes on and, and he says, And the grace of our Lord overflowed for me with the faith and the love that are in Christ Jesus. And this is a trustworthy saying, he says, a trustworthy statement, deserving full acceptance that Jesus Christ came into the world to what? To save righteous people? No, to save sinners. See, this is man's elementally basic, elemental problem here. Elementary problem is sin. The problem is sin. It's not the family. It's not how you were raised. The problem is sin. And guess what? This is why Christ came. He came to deal with our sin, as we sang about tonight, the old rugged cross, right? If it wasn't for the cross, we would still be in our sins. And Paul says, by the way, even though I was really a really, really nice person, even though I looked like uh, the real deal on the outside, he was a Pharisee, very religious, then he says, you know what? I was the foremost of all sinners. I was the worst of all sinners. And sin is the problem. And you see that throughout the, the pastoral epistles. Um, look over at, at chapter 5 in 1 Timothy. Chapter 5, look at verse 18. Now here he's talking about elders in the church. Okay, you think there'd be some spirituality there. Uh, there ought to be elders. They ought to minister and serve and lead the congregation. That's what he says. And then in verse, verse 18, he says, those who are laboring at preaching and teaching ought to be paid by the ministry uh, that they do and, and things like that. And then he says in verse 19, look at this. He says, be careful about this. He says, do not admit a charge against an elder except on the evidence of two or three witnesses. Okay, and then he says, as for those who persist in sin, he's not talking, he's talking about elders in the church. These are supposed to be spiritual people. And yet they're persisting in sin. Those who persist in sin, he says, rebuke them in the presence of all. This is how serious it was, so that the rest may stand in fear. In other words, boy, I don't want to be standing in front of the congregation one day and say, yeah, be called out on my sin. And then he says in verse 21, in the presence of God and of Christ Jesus and of the elect angels, Timothy, I charge you to keep these rules without prejudging, judging, doing nothing from partiality. In other words, what he says is just because they're elders, that doesn't take them off the sin table. <laughs> they're still sinners just like you and I, right? Just because somebody's a pastor doesn't mean they're not a sinner. Just because somebody's an elder or a Sunday school teacher or serving the Lord or whatever, missionary, doesn't mean they're not a sinner. And see, somehow we've gotten beyond that. We tend to look at what people's role is in the church and we think oh they're you know to almost to be worshiped that's not that's just 
couldn't be further from the truth. And Paul is saying that sin is so pervasive, such a, a major human problem, that no one, no one is immune. I don't care who you are. I don't care if you're a priest, you're a pope, a bishop, whatever it might be. Um, he says it can even go to the, the point of affecting spiritual leaders within the church. Look over at Titus, Titus chapter 3. A couple of books there you read. Titus chapter 3. He begins the chapter 3 here. Um, And he says, remind them to be submissive to rulers and authorities, to be obedient, to be ready for every good work. He's teaching these congregations uh, all these things. To be obedient, to be ready for every good deed, uh, to speak evil of no one, to avoid quarreling, to be gentle, to show perfect courtesy toward all people. And, and so he points out here, and you say, wait a minute, um, is this, who's this applying to? Is it applying to people there in the church? He's saying, listen, you, you need to understand, we need to, to make sure that our behavior is above all this. And then he says, don't think that you're, uh, you shouldn't consider these, these, these people. Don't think that you shouldn't judge certain people. Don't think that you should you know, not look at people's lives and say, hey, wait a minute, and hold them account. See, the church has been silenced into this idea that, well, unless I'm a perfect Christian, I don't have the right to speak out against a brother or sister in Christ because who am I, right? And they'll quote verses like, well, take the log out of your own eye before you, you know, those kind of things. Now, granted, our lives should be, you know, free of sin and things like that before we go out calling out sin in other people's lives. But at the same time, don't be silenced. If you see a brother or sister in sin, we have every right to go and say something to it. And we have to do it in a humble way. We have to do it in a way that shows um, consideration. At the end there of, of verse 2, he kind of says that. He says, avoid uh, quarreling, show perfect courtesy toward all people. Even these people who are quarreling. Even the people that aren't treating you right, what if they don't deserve consideration? Why should I treat them nice if they're gossiping behind my back about me? Why should I be nice to them? Well, this is exactly what Paul is trying to get across here. And look at what he says here in verse 3. He gives the purpose. The reason why you need to do this, this isn't an option to treat all people with courtesy, whether they treat you courteously or not, um, with courtesy or not, you need to show courtesy to them. Show perfect courtesy, it says. For, he says, purpose, what? We ourselves, right? We're once foolish. Oh, wait a minute. We're not above this then. We're part of the problem sometimes. We ourselves were once foolish, disobedient, led astray, slaves to various passions and pleasures, passing our days in malice, and in envy, hated by others, and hating one another. This was us. This was you. This was me. So when, you know, when we 
exhort another brother or sister who maybe be in sin, we, we, we want to do it with a, with a little bit of humility, with a little bit of understanding, because we've walked in their shoes, clearly. And then he says in verse 4, but look at what happens. This is what it takes. The goodness and the loving kindness of our God, our Savior, appeared. What? He saved us. Not because we were doing something great, not because of works we have done in righteousness, but according to his own mercy, by the washing of regeneration and the renewal of the Holy Spirit, whom he poured out on us richly through Christ Jesus our Savior, so that being justified by his grace, we might become heirs according to the hope of eternal life. And the saying is trustworthy, and I want you to insist on these things, he tells them. So that those who have believed in God, he's talking to believers, may be careful to devote themselves to good works. These things are excellent and profitable for people, but avoid foolish uh, controversies, genealogies, dissensions, and quarrels about the law, for they are unprofitable and worthless. Some people read those verses and they say, oh, see, this is why we shouldn't even talk about theology because theology just divides and it says to avoid foolish controversies. Talking about theology, beloved, is not a foolish controversy. Okay, you better be clear on what you believe and you should be able to stand up when people challenge what you believe and be able to exhort them into, you know, give evidence for what, what you believe the scriptures teach. That's not considered here. Th these are people who are chasing the wind kind of. And then he says, as for the person who stirs up division within the body of Christ. All right, the believer with, among you who is, is divisive. They're just, they're just out to divide. They're, they're talking about things that you, you can't even um, discern or good or bad or right or wrong. They're just kind of, they want arguments to happen. And there's certain people that have that kind of personality. But he says, look, if you have a person like that who stirs up division after warning him once and then twice, in other words, give him a little bit of grace and then give him a little bit more, but after that, what's it say? Have nothing more to do with him, knowing that such a person is warped and what? There it is, sinful, and he is self-condemned. So the problem here is that we were disobedient to God. We were deceived by Satan. We were deceived by our own sin. We were enslaved to these various lusts and pleasures and spending, spending our, our life in malice and envy, as it says there. Uh, this is, this is the, the, just the pervasive influence of sin. And this is what the problem with mankind is. And so when you read all those texts, and those are just a small sample of them, you understand very clear what man's problem is. It's not himself, it's not, you know, his environment, it's not, it's sin. It's sin. And you say, well, how did this all begin? Where did this go? Go, go to uh, 1 Timothy chapter 2. 1 Timothy chapter 2. And this is kind of done in the context of explaining the role of women in the church so it's kind of, it seems like, why are you talking about this now? Because he kind of gets around to this, this problem of, of, of sin. Um, he, he gets down to it in, in verse 12. Um, in verse 11, he says, let a woman learn quietly with all submissiveness. Uh, he says, I don't permit a woman to teach or to exercise authority over a man. Rather, she is to remain quiet. And you say, well, why is that? I mean, don't we believe in... You know, aren't we equal and all that? He's not, he's not questioning that. 
Okay, it's a matter of the role of women in the church. And there's a reason here. He gives two reasons. First of all, the, the, one of those is the order of creation. And he goes on, verse 13, he says, For Adam was formed first, then Eve. Could God have created Eve first and then Adam? I guess he could have. He's God. He could do whatever he wants. But he didn't do it that way. So there's a purpose behind what God God doesn't just do things haphazardly. There's a purpose there. And the second reason was, is because of what happened in the fall. And he goes on there. He says it was not Adam, uh, for, and, and Adam was not deceived, but the woman was deceived and became a transgressor. And so he, he, he talks about that because it's very important that we understand this goes all the way back. This sin problem goes all the way back, as Kai pointed out before, to Genesis 3. That's where it really began. And it, it's something that happened there that affects all of us. It's very crucial to understand that because if you don't understand that, then you're, you're very prone to think, well, you know, my next door neighbor, he's a good guy. No, he's a sinner, just like you're a sinner. Um, and, and this is only really, when we, when we look at our individual sins, this is not the, the problem, okay? And this is not what we're talking about. We're not talking about well, how many sins do you have in your life, brother or sister. No, it's not that. Those sins are just problematic of a deeper problem, okay? And this is what he wants us to see. Those sins are only symptoms of the real problem. It's kind of like, you know, when your, your body starts swelling up or something happens to your body and you, you realize, well, this isn't normal. I need to go to the doctor and see what's going on. Okay. Well, you don't go to the doctor and they say, oh, your elbow's swelling up. Yeah, you have a swelling of your elbow. No, they, they do tests. And they say, well, why is this swelling up, right? Or why do you have this lump? Or why do you have this? Or why do you have that? Um, whatever it might be. And, and those sins are only symptoms of the real problem. And so we're talking about this, this sinful condition of the human soul. And this is what a lot of people don't like to talk about today. Um, it's not the outbreaks of the boils on the skin that are the problem. It's the, it's the cancer underneath. That's what, that's what Paul is trying to get us to see. Um, and this is what theologians call what? Original sin. Original sin. And this means basically that the effects of Adam's sin is on everyone. It affects all of us. Um, even as we sit here tonight, what happened in the Garden of Eden affect, affected us, affected our lives today, even in this, this many thousands of years later. Uh, specifically, there are two effects on every one of us that is a result of what happened in the Garden of Eden. Number one is personal guilt. Personal guilt. Personal guilt. We're talking about original sin. Look at Romans 5. Romans 5. And remember, now this is all going back to the biblical view of who man is. All right? And it may seem kind of disjointed, but I think you'll see it come together in the end here. Uh, Romans 5, verse 10, Paul makes it very clear here. Uh, it's because of what Adam did that each one of us shares uh, kind of a personal guilt 
before a holy God. Uh, in verses 10 and 11, there, uh, Romans 5, he says, For if while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God by the death of his Son, much more now that we are reconciled, shall we be saved by his life. Then he says in verse 11, More than that, we also rejoice in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have now received reconciliation. In other words, reconciliation is a bringing of the parties back together. And then he says in verse 12, Therefore, and this is where it gets back all the way to the Garden of Eden, just as sin came into the world through one man, that one man being Adam, and death through sin passed through to all of us, and so death spread to all men. Because why? All sinned. All are guilty. And then he says in verse 13, For sin indeed was in the world before the law was given. In other words, you know, the law wasn't given and then they broke the law and that was the sin. What he's saying is, no, there was sin in the world before the law was even given. Um, but sin is not counted where there is no law. Yet, death reigned from Adam to Moses, even over those, when they had no sin, or had no law, even over those whose sinning was not like the transgression, transgression of Adam, who was a type of the one who was to come. And so he gets into this, and he begins to, to, to talk about there in verse 12, he says, hey, you know what? This one man, Adam, sinned. The sin came through the world, and death by sin, and, and therefore it spread to all men. That's us. Now look all the way down at verse 19, because he kind of explains. He says, because all sinned. And then in verse 19, he says, for as by one man's what disobedience, the many were made sinners. Adam sinned, therefore we were all made sinners. We all inherited that sinfulness. So by one man's obedience, who is he speaking of? Christ. That the many will be made righteous. All right, so you may think, well, wait a minute. I mean, this is how God thinks of every living human being. It doesn't matter whether they're an elder in a church, a pope, or, you know, a pauper. It makes no difference. Um, God thinks every living human being who ever lived or ever will live, they're made sinners. It's not because of what they do. Do you understand? It's not because of what they do. It's just, it's, it's who they are. The verb tense here implies that when Adam sinned all those many generations, thousands of years ago, God thought of every human being from that point on as being a sinner. Why? I mean, it's in, now we're not talking about feelings of, of guilt here. We're not talking about feelings that come from when you sin. All right? We're not talking about the, the sinful acts that you may do on a daily basis. We're not, we're not speaking of that. We're talking about the guilt in the sense of our relationship to the law. We're talking about a standing before a judge and being declared guilty, even though we didn't do anything, because we are sinners. Very important to understand that. We have a real personal guilt before the judge of all the universe. 
and it was passed on to us. From the moment of conception, we stand before a holy God guilty of having violated his law and deserving of punishment. It's so important to understand. Isn't that what David wrote in Psalm 51? Remember, he's confessing his sin with Bathsheba and the murder of Uriah, and he says, I was brought forth, what? In iniquity. I was born in iniquity. And in sin, my mother conceived me. He's not saying he was, he was born illegitimately. He's not saying that. He was saying, you go all the way back to the moment of my conception, and sin was a reality in my life. That's what he's communicating to us. Through Adam's disobedience, many were, you could say, constituted as sinners. Not by acts of, of sin, but just by being connected to Adam. Um, so you see this relationship between the two. Well, how do we get guilt for Adam's sin, you might ask? Well, that doesn't, you know, that doesn't seem fair. Well, the, the answer is simply it's imputed to us. Um, it is credited to our account because each of them were acting as our representatives. Just as if when Christ went to the cross and he was raised from the dead and then he imputed his righteousness to us, right? Even though we have no righteousness of our own, God looks at us as what? Righteous. Why? Because of Christ's work. We have the righteousness of Christ that covers us. All right, well, the same way, we have the guilt and the sinfulness of Adam that covers us. So you can't say, oh, that's not fair, but over here, I want the righteousness of Christ free and, and by grace and all that, and, and it's not my righteousness, it's his righteousness. I want to go to heaven because of that, but I don't want to go to hell because of Adam's sin. How do you get credit for Adam's sin? And before you go into that fairness thing, just think about it. It's, it's not fair that we get the righteousness of Christ either. Um, when Adam sinned, God placed real personal guilt for that sin in our account. Because he acted as our representative. Um, but that's not all that happened because of Adam's sin in the garden. The second effect of Adam's sin is not just this um, this idea of, of kind of total, uh, you know, this personal guilt that we own, right? But secondly, we have inherited pollution. <laughs> In other words, we were not born good. We were born sinners. We're not born even neutral, and then society messes, up, messes us up, as these, these secular psychologists say. Um, we all were born polluted. We were all born tainted. Um, probably even with specific uh, propensities to sin inherited from our parents. But that inherited corruption expresses itself, theologians say, the inherited pollution expresses itself in two ways. And they're there in your notes. Total depravity and total inability. Total depravity and total inability. You've probably heard the, the phrase total depravity. We're talking about that sinfulness corruption permeates every part of who we are. There's not one little corner of our life that is not touched by sinfulness. 
Now, it doesn't mean that you're as bad as you're ever going to be. See, this is where we misunderstand total depravity. We think, oh, that means that we're just as bad as we could be. No, no. Um, I'm not as bad as I could be. No person is as bad as they could be. Why? Because we have a restraining grace by God, and we have the culture around us that restrains us from that. Now, we see that restraint kind of faltering, um, but it means that every part of us is permeated with that corruption. There's nothing spiritually good in us at all in the sight of God. He doesn't look at us and say, oh, wow, there's just a little bit of goodness. There. No, there's nothing. That will affect your view of man if you believe that. If you believe in total depravity, a lot of things are going to begin to make sense. And you say, well, what about those people that appear good? I mean, does this mean that everybody's running around an axe murderer? No, it doesn't mean that at all. I mean, there's a pl plenty of, you could call, good people by the world standards in our world. We see in the headlines, things like that. Sometimes there's some good news, people helping other people out, things like that. And you can kind of say, well, aren't they good? Well, think of it this way. And I read this illustration this past Week and I thought it, it kind of made a lot of sense. Imagine for a moment a crew of, of pirates who rebelled against the king and they're out on the open sea on their ship and they have this whole, this whole ship in control and they're just doing their own thing. They're rebelling against the king. They're pirates on the high seas. And those pirates live in a relatively degree of harmony on that ship with one another. They help each other, they're loyal to each other, uh, they defend each other, they may even die for each other. And you say, well, aren't those good deeds? Don't they do these good deeds? And yet their good deeds are at the same time considered evil deeds. Why? Because everything they do, everything they live for, their whole purpose of their lives is an act of rebellion against their rightful king. They don't want to be under his subjection. They want to do their own thing. And so they're out there doing what pirates do. And if you ask a fellow pirate if that's a good deed, they'll say, well, sure. You know, I helped out George today. Carry up the boxes, you know, when we stole the people's treasure or whatever it was. But if you ask the, the king, well, can you see the, some goodness in these pirates? I mean, they're, they're getting along. They're helping each other. He'll say No. No, they're, they're living entire lives in rebellion against my rightful authority. Even though within their little cosmos, they're, they're being nice, that doesn't make them good people. And that's how it is with every unbeliever. Every unbeliever may do things that here on the pirate ship appear to be good to the other pirates, but to the king, the good is really bad. Because it's done in rebellion. It's done against the ruler, the rightful king. That's what total depravity is. Badness permeates every part of who we are. But part of our inherited corruption is not only depravity, but secondly, I put down there total inability. That's what theologians call it, total inability. What does it mean? It means we have the... 
the inability to change who we are. We, we don't have any ability to change who we are. We are unable to do so. It means that we have the inability to change our character. Can't do it. Man is incapable of changing his character and of acting in any way distinct from his sinfulness, from his corruption. In other words, we're hopeless. We're hopeless. That's truly our human condition. And that's why we say that man's problem is sin. We're saying that he has a real guilt before a holy God, both for Adam's sin and his own sin. And in addition to that, that he has all the inherited corruption that permeates every part of his being, and there's nothing that he can do to change it. That's a big problem. The secular world doesn't look at it that way. Now, if you're in Christ, that was your problem that has been dealt with by the life and the death and the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Now, what does this problem result in? Very practically, original sin creates serious consequences on different levels. First of all, it causes alienation from God. It causes alienation from God, original sin. Um, a lot of times we sin in our own lives and we think, well, we're not that bad, we don't do that bad. And we think, well, it's not really affecting anybody else, so it's okay. And we begin to believe that. And you have to stop and you have to say, understand that biblically that God has given you his law and that he's made you, he's created you, he sustains your life, he's told you how you ought to live. You belong to him, not yourself. He has every right to tell you what to do. And then what do we do? We rebel. And we say, well, I don't want to do what God wants me to do. I want to go sin. I want to go do this. That looks attractive to me, whatever it might be. And basically, when you do that, what are you saying to God, your Savior? You're saying, you know what? Stay out of my life. I, I, I know what you want, but I, I'm going to do what I want. Thank you very much. That's when we get ourselves in problem. It's a personal affront to God. Um, God sees our sin as a rebellion against him. Look at 1 Timothy chapter 2, verse 5. 1 Timothy chapter 2, verse 5. This is why this is so important that we understand this, because it tells us in 1 Timothy chapter 2, verse 5, that we need something to fix this. We can't fix this on our own. And so Paul says, for there is one God, and there is what? One mediator between God and man, men, the man Christ Jesus. The man Christ Jesus. See, we need somebody to bring us together to God. We can't do it on our own because we have this serious problem of alienation from God because of our sin. Um, it's so bad. Look at, at verse at verse 6. It's so bad, God has to mediate, and he, he gave the man Christ, Jesus, to mediate, and then it says, who gave himself as a ransom for all. He has to give himself a sacrifice to redeem us, to reconcile us to God. That's the only way that we can be reconciled to God. Because remember, Romans 5, Paul says we were God's enemies. It doesn't matter whether you felt like God's enemies. I didn't feel like God's enemy when I was going to the Catholic Church and an altar boy. I 
I didn't think that at all. But I was, because I was not converted. I wasn't trusting in Christ. That's God's assessment. It's not, we don't have the right to you know, assess our own goodness before a holy God. He says we're enemies. We're enemies. And we need reconciliation through the death of his son. Now, thank God for his patience, right? He's so patient with us. He's patient, and he's tolerant, and he's pouring out goodness on our life each and every day. Even when we didn't know him, he's doing this. And he's giving us all kinds of temporary goodness in our lives under his grace. And yet, there are troubles in this life. There are problems. But there's good things as well. And unfortunately, when we experience those good things, we tend to think, okay, God's okay, I'm okay, where everybody's okay. And, and that's not the truth. Romans 2 says, don't mistake God's patience for tolerance. God is patient, but he's not tolerant. He's not going to tolerate your sin. His goodness, the Bible says, is intended to what? To lead us to repentance. That's what the goodness of God does in our lives. And if you're just going to say, hey, you know what? I don't want the goodness of God. I'm going to do my own thing. Then the Bible says, you know what? If you're happy living on your little pirate ship in the middle of the sea, doing your own thing, whatever you want to do, whenever you want to do, and taking advantage of other people, whatever it might be, and it looks good to your pirate friends, but before a holy God, it's sin. What are you doing? You're storing up, the Bible says, wrath. You're storing up wrath for yourself. You're storing up wrath in the day of wrath. Because there's a day of reckoning coming Coming is what Paul points out. Um, sooner or later, this will catch up with people. It's like the guy who jumped out of the 20-story building and someone heard him as he was passing the 10th floor. Hey, it's all good so far. <laughs> well, not for very long. Not for very long. And God says there will be a day when I will punish your rebellion. I'll punish it forever. See, that's biblical reality that we are alienated from God. Not only alienation, but it says that we are our slavery, we're a slave to sin. We become slaves to sin. The consequences of this action really alienates us from God, but then it, it makes us, we become slaves to sin. This inward infection takes over, you could say. Um, 1 Timothy 6.5, Paul's talking about the false teachers, but he says they have a depraved mind. In Ephesians 4, he talks about, says the same thing of unbelievers. In Mark 7, Jesus says, your problem is not just because of your external actions. That's not the problem. The problem lies where? In your heart. See, it's very easy to fool people. But Jesus said, because out of the heart comes all these sins. See, the sins... That, that come out are merely a, a, you could say, a reflection of who we really are. They reflect who we are. But unfortunately, those external sins, those internal sins, pretty soon they become our masters. Just like in Titus 3.3, 3, he, says, he says that we're enslaved to cra various cravings and pleasures, he says. Uh, we're not free. We're slave to sin. And it's, it's important that we understand this. So alienation from God, a slave to sin. The last thing here is the third consequence of sin is conflict with others. Conflict with others. This is what he, he points out there in Titus 3.3. Uh, 3. Um, you know, and this is not, 
this conflict with others, this happens everywhere. Uh, this isn't, sometimes we think because we live in California, oh my gosh, it's such a horrible state. And if we just moved to Florida, or we just moved to Idaho, or we just moved wherever where people were nicer, we wouldn't have all these problems. Uh, that's not true. When I was in Idaho visiting my grandkids a couple of weeks ago, Will and I were going to the Chick-fil-A and right, right there, the cops shot a guy dead because <laughs> he was trying to carjack some poor lady. I mean, right across the street, right there. I got a video of it on my phone. It's just, it's just crazy, right? And you think, wow, wait a minute. Aren't I in Idaho? I mean, I'm not in LA. <laughs> See, it doesn't matter. Right? Because sin causes conflict with others. Um, Titus 3.3 says, spending our lives in malice and envy, hateful, hating one another. It increases conflicts. This is, this is where it goes. Where do all these problems, problems lead? Uh, 2 Timothy 4.1 says, Timothy, I solemnly charge you in the presence of God and of Christ Jesus. And then he says this, who is to judge the living and the dead? See, that's where it's going. It's going to judgment. Ultimately, every human being will stand before God, his rightful king, her rightful king, creator, sustainer, rightful owner, and they will have to give an account for what is going on in their life. Believers will be at the judgment seat of Christ where their works will be evaluated. Unbelievers, if you want to read what that looks like, read Revelation 20. And it describes what will be going on when unbelievers stand before Jesus Christ. They're not going to find Jesus to be some humble, bumble guy that's just, oh, forgiving. No, no, not at all. He's going to be the judge. And there's going to be a coming day of judgment. And so man's ultimate problems ultimately stem from all of this happening. From one polluted fountain. It all goes back to sin. And see, if you don't understand that, what happens? See, if you, if you have the wrong diagnosis, what's going to happen? You're always going to have the flawed treatment. Do you ever go to the doctor and they misdiagnose you and they give you something and you start taking that, but you still have the problem, right? And then the medicine they give you causes other problems. So you go back to the doctor and say, now I got this problem, but the other problem still hasn't gone away. Oh, you know what? We misdiagnosed you. You shouldn't even be taking that medication. You should be taking this. You know? Oh, well, thanks a lot, Doc. Appreciate it. If you have a wrong diagnosis, you're always going to have a flawed treatment. And if man's problems are caused by sin, the treatment, the only treatment, can be salvation, can be sanctification. It brings us back to where the Scripture tells us we need to be, right, in our rightful relationship with God. Well, how is this demonstrated in the church? Quickly, first of all, if a church has a biblical view of man, it will teach that man's only hope is outside of himself in Christ Jesus. The only hope for someone who is a sinner is Christ. That's it. That's it. That's his only hope. If you understand the depth of the problem of sin, and hopefully we kind of pointed that out to you tonight, you're going to understand that you need God to save you. You need God to rescue you. Um, the second Timothy 1, verse 9, he says, He called us with a holy calling, not according to our works, but according to his own purpose and grace, which was granted 
us in Christ Jesus from all eternity. Because we never would have gotten there. Our religion won't do it. Our good works won't do it. We need to throw ourselves on the kindness of our God and Savior and his love. When he appeared, he rescued us. Not because of what we did. Not because of our own righteousness. But according to his mercy, it says. Number two, the church's chief goal for Christians, where there's a biblical view of man, will be their sanctification. In other words, in a, in a biblical church with a biblical view of man, the goal for Christians is their sanctification, to become more like Christ. If sin is the problem, then the goal, once a person comes to Christ, will be that they lay aside the sin and they live lives of holiness. Titus 2.14 says Christ gave himself for us to redeem us from every lawless deed and to purify for himself a people for his own possession, zealous of good deeds. He wanted to deal with man's sin problem. He wanted to deal with the alienation from God, the penalty of sin, and all that, that, all that happened in Christ. And that's where the emphasis will be. Number three, when you hear messages in a biblical church that have a biblical view of man, you will hear the issue of sin raised. Okay? Um, I remember listening to a sermon of a, of a very well-known pastor in a very large church in Southern California. And in his talk, as he said, he was talking about premarital sex, uh, and he was against it. And I'll never forget, in his message, he, he kind of was just hesitating, and he kind of mentioned this whole premarital sex, and, and then he says, okay, I, I have to say this, I have to say it. It's sin, okay? Okay, now we can move on. It's like, wow! I mean, he's apologizing to his congregation for even saying the word sin. I mean, that's how, that's how you know, off the mark they really are. And you know what, if, if you ever hear someone apologize for using the word sin, run from that church. Okay, number four, the church will use biblical language of sin rather than the language of psychology. If you're in a church and you hear you know, biblical words like repentance and salvation and sanctification and sin, rather than the little pop psychological words like self-help, healing, self-esteem, felt needs, self-worth, victimization, wholeness, negative thinking, positive thinking, on and on the list goes. Okay, uh, th those words are not biblical words. Number five, where there's a biblical view of man in the church, the church will exist to encourage and facilitate change rather than simply support of people in their current condition. This is so important because so many churches, they have what they call uh, and there's nothing wrong with this in and of itself, support groups. But I remember we were at the same church in Southern California. When I first came here, we actually went to a, 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 a church conference uh, in Orange County at Saddleback. And um, I was amazed when I look at their bulletin, all of the, the, um, the support groups they had. It's just amazing. I mean... I mean, in the bulletin they had listed, and they said, if there's anything else, let us know, because we have other ones too, you know? I mean, it was like pages and pages of them. And one of them was this. It was, it was a support group for codependent women married to sexually addicted men. 
It's like, who would go to that, first of all? I mean, what, what they totalize that? I don't It's so weird, right? But I mean, and, and the idea is, rather than, you know, call sin, sin, well, we have to support these people, okay? This is where I really have an issue with groups like AA, Alcoholics Anonymous, and things like that. It's like, when do you think it's a good idea to take a bunch of people who are given to alcoholism, put them in the same room, and then let them share their issues with each other? That's not going to work, okay? It's not going to work. And originally, it may have started out a little more pro-God and, and that kind of higher power kind of a thing, um, but you know what? In the end, uh, they're making a choice, okay? And, and so we, we, we need to, and I'm not saying all support groups are bad. I'm not saying that. But all I'm saying, the biblical view is that, you know what, you, they need to be encouraged and shaped and directed to make true, lasting change, not supported by somebody else who has the same issue going on. Uh, the church will not be structured, number six, to meet the felt needs of unbelievers. If you understand original sin, you understand the felt needs of people are not the right needs. If you understand what Calvin said, that the human heart is an idle factory, you, you can know that it can't cater to people's felt needs because where do those felt needs go? You know, if you want a list of that, look at 1 John 2, 15. You, you see where it goes. The lust of the flesh, right? The lust of the eyes, the pride of life, all those things. You can't cater to that. Um, number seven, the church that has a biblical view of man understands that continuing, understands the continuing struggle with sin, even in the heart of the believer. In other words, you don't arrive to some plateau where you are perfect and you don't deal with sin at all. All right, this is why Paul had to tell Timothy in 1 Timothy 4 7. Discipline yourself for the purpose of godliness. He tells, he says also in, in 1 Timothy 6, 11, Timothy, I want you to run, and I want you to flee from all those things that characterize false teachers, including the love of money. That's why in 2 Timothy 2.22, he says, I want you to flee. I want you to run the cravings of youth. All right? He says, don't stick around and chat about it. No. And he's not just talking about sexual sin here. That's included, obviously, but he's talking about the cravings for wealth and power and all these other things as well. And he says, don't walk away, run away. Because, you know what, the biblical church understands that sin continues to be a problem even in the lives of believers. We all have issues with it. And then lastly, the church and its leadership that has a biblical view of man will understand that even religious people who claim Christ may not be Christians. May not be Christians. Even religious people who claim to know Christ, who attend a Christian church, they may be lost. Okay? And so we need to understand that. And that's where, you know, we just want to kind of focus that. It says in 2 Timothy um, chapter 3, verse 5, it says, They hold to a form of godliness, but they deny its power. Verse 6 says, They're the kind who enter into households, captivate weak women, weigh down with sins and so forth. We're talking about people who show up in the name of Christ, who say they're a Christian, and, uh, but, but in their hearts, their hearts are, are broken. And so we need to be, be aware of that. Um, and then you can read the rest of the outline there as far as making it personal. You know, um, do you understand that all your problems are caused by uh, sin and not by the people around you? Stop blaming people. Take accountability. Own it. 
I mean, we all have issues with sin to some extent in our lives. I mean, to say we didn't, we'd be perfect. And that's why 2 Timothy 13, 15, Paul tells us to what? Examine ourselves to see whether or not we're in the faith. Don't just take it for granted because you're a Christian for 40 years. You know, stop and say, hey, what is God doing fresh in my life? Well, Father, we thank you for tonight. Thank you for your word. And Lord, we do pray that you would give us a biblical view of man. Lord, it's not a real pretty view, but it does have hope when we look to Christ because we know that he came to reconcile us, to forgive us of our sin. And Lord, there's only one mediator between God and man, and that is the Lord Jesus Christ. It's not hard. We don't have multiple choice. We don't have to make the best choice. There's only one choice to be made. You've made it very simple for us. And there's only one person who died on our behalf, and that is the Lord Jesus Christ. And he calls us to follow him, to put our faith in him, to become his disciple, to forget about ourselves, and to uh, die to ourselves, and to live for Christ each and every day. And when we do that, Lord, you say that you, you do that, that transaction in our heart. You save us when we come to you hopeless without any hope in ourselves. Our only hope is in Christ. You say you transform us, you give us a fresh, a new heart that is, is able to believe in you. And Lord, we pray that you would just continue to do that work of sanctification in our lives. Make us more like Christ each day. None of us here are perfect. We're all growing to some degree each and every day. And we pray that, that, uh, that we would be faithful to follow you um, in this world in which we live. We pray for any who may be here or hearing this message, Lord, that has not put their faith or trust in Christ, in Christ alone, for salvation. I pray that you would do that work in their heart that only you can and save their heart and their soul. We thank you and we praise you in Jesus' precious name. Amen.